Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Shapes of Stories, a podcast with me, Lawrence Prestige, as your host. Stories come in all shapes and sizes, whether it be from our favourite books, our life experiences, or the day-to-day challenges and issues we face in the world today. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shapes and Stories with me, Lawrence Prestige. Um, really excited to share this new episode with you because we are joined by a very inspirational um, young lady. Um, her name is Hope Virgo. I'm sure some of you may have seen her on Sky News and um, BBC News and other media outlets out there. Uh, very popular on social media and really it's refreshing to hear um, her being so open and honest and sharing her experiences with her um, with her mental health and her eating disorders that she's um, had to deal with. Um, in, in 2017, she wrote a, a book called Stand Tall, Little Girl, talking about her battle with anorexia. And, um, you know, it was a really interesting chat that we had in this episode. Um, Hope opened up about um, being abused, um, you know, at, while she was a young girl. Um, her experiences of um, going through an eating disorder as a teenager. Um, she spoke about, um, since she's written the book and sort of appeared speaking out about her um, struggles of eating disorders and anorexia, she's been able to, um, she's, you know, she's received... Um, some abuse online, I suppose, is the only way you could say it, from trolls and things like that, which wasn't very nice, and how she dealt with that. And um, it was really refreshing to talk to Hope. And I think if anyone's going through any kind of struggle, whether that be with eating disorders or um, anorexia, but not only just that, if you're going through any kind of um, difficult time right now, whether it be depression or any mental mental health or loneliness with the, with the lockdown that's um, ongoing, this is a really refreshing um, episode for you to listen to and uh, I want to urge anyone out there that's going through a difficult time to um, please reach out to someone because talking is is such a huge part of um, your road to recovery and um, Hope now talks to us about her her road to recovery and yeah I look forward to sharing this episode with you so without further ado here is my chat with the wonderful Hope Virgo. Hope Virgo, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing okay. It's been a weird year. How's it been for you? Yeah, it's been really odd, actually. And when I said I was okay, I was like, am I okay? Um, (laughs) I was like, I just like, that's the normal answer you give, isn't it? I think, um, yeah, it's been really, really odd. And I feel like at the moment, from like, I'm back in that from one moment to the next, I'm not really sure how I'm doing um so like go through a phase of kind of like a bit of denial about what's about to happen with lockdown and then being okay about it and things like that and I yeah I guess that's just been what it's been for the whole year that kind of roller coaster of emotions yeah it has been really emotional I guess for for the whole country but I know with you with your work you've you've done a really amazing job about speaking out about you know your mental health your eating disorders and um how have you been able to I guess in a way find that inner strength that bravery to come out and be able to talk about these things so openly um so I think it it has been really hard at times actually but I think for me it was it was just like a bit of a no-brainer like back in 2016 I relapsed and when I relapsed I really struggled to get support um, and access treatment on the NHS because I wasn't underweight and 
with anorexia particularly and with all eating disorders really there's this whole fixation on weight and so when I came through my relapse I was like I just need to do something and I yeah I for me it was like having this realization that actually there are so many people out there really struggling people who maybe function at a really high level with an eating disorder who never access that support and I was really lucky because I had that support in place but we don't often a lot of people don't have that and I think particularly as well for me what was really important and I know that some other people do do this as well but was just having that like constant honesty with people about actually I'm not fully recovered and it sometimes can be like a real journey of emotions throughout the day and sometimes it feels really hard and I wanted to start sharing my story as a way to actually be like, do you know what? Like, it's okay if you're in recovery and you're speaking out and it's ongoing and you're not fully fixed because it doesn't make us any less of a person. It doesn't make us weak as well. Yeah, no, you wrote your first book in 2017, Stand Tall Little Girl, which was a huge success, really, really well written. Um, what, did you find like when you were writing that it was quite helpful in terms of almost like therapeutic for you I guess like for me because you know I've someone that's dealt with my mental health problems and um, depression and things like that and I when I when I've been writing I've almost kind of felt it like it's a bit of a therapy session for me cheaper than therapy as well <laughs> yeah I yeah a hundred percent and I actually still journal like a lot so if like I've had a rough day or even at the mm. moment when there's so much uncertainty I'm literally like journaling every single thing down um but no I did and it was really strange because I thought that I'd find the book like really triggering kind of going back to that space but what it did for me was it made me realize like firstly like how far I've come which is something that I never really think about and never take stock to do and I think probably a lot of other people don't ever take stock as well within that but also reminding me that actually I never want to go back to that space and I want to keep working towards full recovery and keep yeah kind of pushing myself forward in that sense um so yeah definitely was therapeutic I actually um kind of locked myself away for a couple of days to try and write like a substantial amount of it which was draining at times but again kind of helped in the long term yeah okay so so when you've been um writing it is it sometimes when you're going through those memories that you've that you've shared so openly is it is it difficult to to go, to go back into that place yeah there were some bits I wrote about um so my first book I wrote, yeah, I wrote, it's kind of like a broad kind of, yeah, my whole kind of story, I guess. And there were moments in it, particularly around kind of some things with my childhood that I found quite challenging to write about. Um, and there were some things that I wrote about very matter-of-factly and didn't really want to go into detail about. So I was also abused as a child. And I think for me, like, that's something that I've only just been able to start really talking openly about and actually processing probably in a more healthy way but in my first book I was like I don't really want to talk about this in a great detail because whilst it's part of my story I just didn't have that I guess that emotional energy to deal with it um and then there were other points in the book um like family things and probably the moments just before I went into hospital when I was writing about that where I'd kind of write for a couple of hours and then I'd have to go outside like go for like a walk just have like some of my own space um, just to, yeah, I guess just to kind of reflect on what I'd written and stuff. So uh, what are your like earliest memories of having problems with eating? Was it, was it something that when you were really, really young that you, you always struggled with? Um, so looking back, I, I think I had always struggled with food, if I'm honest. Um, so I really struggled with the way that I looked. I struggled with dealing with emotions. And when I was nine, actually, my mum made me go and see this therapist like once a week for about six months. And oh, wow, at nine, that must be tough for a nine year old. Yeah. 
It was strange. And I like, to this day, I still don't really understand why I went. And I've never really managed to get a straight answer out of my mum about why I went. Um, and I think what made it worse was actually my dad didn't even know that I'd gone. So he only okay. found out that I'd gone when my book came out and he read it. And he was like, this is weird. Like, I never knew this happened. I was like, yeah, well, it was strange. Um, so... And then I kind of, throughout, I guess, the first couple of years at secondary school, um, just from looking back, like, over a lot of my diary entries and things like that, every couple of months I'd get fixated on trying to lose weight and calorie counted and would constantly be dieting. And, yeah, it just became, like, something that completely took over me. Um, And so I think, like, a combination of that and then the fact that the abuse happened when I was kind of 12, 13 just fueled this whole eating disorder kind of into something that was much, yeah, just something that was much bigger than just a girl who was trying to lose a little bit of weight but became something that, yeah, just took away all of my control over my own life. Wow. So so, so when, you, when you're going through that, that experience of, of um, your eating disorder as, as well as being abused... Is 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 there a point where you realise that you that you did have a um, an eating disorder? What age did that would that have sort of did it hit you? I suppose that you know that you have that. Um, do you know what? It's such a good question because at the time I didn't think I had anything the matter with me, and like there were moments, there were moments kind of in this four year period between the age of kind of like twelve, thirteen to sixteen, seventeen, where I hated part of my brain at moments. So. For me, the eating disorder was so complimentary, was like kind of fueling my everyday, making me feel really, really good about life. But occasionally it would then make me feel really bad about things. And then when it made me feel bad about things, I was like, this is really odd. Like, does anyone else have this? Does anyone else have voices in their head? Like all of this stuff going on. But I I guess I kind of normalised it. And when I started to question it, it would always then have a day where it made me feel really good about things. Um, And actually, even when I was diagnosed, um, so I went to um, the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services, so CAMS, as an outpatient for about six months before I was admitted to hospital. And actually, throughout that whole period, I was just in this denial phase. And I think partly with eating disorders is it, it the way that the anorexia worked for me was it kind of told me that I didn't have anything the matter, that no one understood what I was going through, that people were just trying to take away this one thing that made everything feel amazing. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there were moments when I probably thought there was something the matter. But the first time that I really started to accept that I had an eating disorder, I needed that support was actually after three days in hospital. So I got admitted on a Wednesday and basically spent my first three days like arguing with everyone like so like angry at the whole situation I was angry at my mum I was angry at the like the staff in the hospital and I'd gone from just kind of like being like free and independent doing what I wanted to do to being admitted with like this completely regimented structure every single day and no independence no control over anything and um yeah my on the Friday night one of the nurses came in to see me And um, she brought with her these massive pieces of paper. And on one of the pieces of paper, she marked where my head was and where my feet were. And she got me to draw how I imagined myself on one, like this piece of paper. And then when I'd done that, she traced around the outside of my body. And then I had to stand up and kind of compare these images. And it was at that moment that I had this realisation that the way that I viewed myself was so, so distorted that maybe I did have something the matter with me. And... For me, I think, like, although I then spent the next year in hospital, like, having to really focus on my recovery, 
it was definitely that moment where I kind of accepted that something wasn't quite right and that maybe I needed some additional support and to get to a space where I could, yeah, kind of function and manage. But I think I think it's so scary, like with eating disorders and with mental health generally, like for a lot of us, that unhealthy coping mechanism, whether it's through food, whether it's through exercise, whether it's through self-harming, like whatever it is, like we can function at such a high level with that illness and with that unhealthy coping mechanism that we don't really realise that anything's the matter. And like definitely with me, like the eating disorder just made me feel so good the majority of the time that I kept wanting to go back to that and get that kind of instant validation, that instant value. Um, And I think again, like just, I guess like now that's why it's really worrying again, because we're entering this kind of another phase within the pandemic and it's it's people who maybe are struggling a little bit or maybe who haven't struggled for years, that unhealthy coping me- mechanism will try and pull them back in to give them that reassurance. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I can appreciate exactly what you're saying. Like, I think I'm someone, you know, I dealt with depression in 2016 and it's it's only really been through the first lockdown that I was like, you know what, I'm really struggling again. And I, And I think that's just because so many things that I use to kind of, would kind of use to, almost distract me from my mental health whatever it was the depression if the depressive feelings that everything was closed off at the same time and it was like you're kind of st- at that point you're stuck alone with your mind <laughs> and that's you know alone completely alone and I think that that can be a really difficult um play, place to be in for, for, for people especially over these lockdown periods but um you, you spoke about you know your frustrations when you're a teenager so I guess it was almost the sense of people just not getting it feeling like people just couldn't get their head around it I, and I can appreciate that because there was someone that I knew that was in uh my theatre college she had an eating disorder sadly she's no longer with us she, she lost her battle with her eating disorder um but she always just thought that she was massive she always thought that she was hideous that she was fat but she was just so she, she'd come into our theatre um lessons on crutches because she was so thin like she would um her her, her feet look frail like but she'd she'd opened up about it to, to me one time that she was bullied at school I don't know what her weight situation was like at secondary school but she was bullied for being fat and at college she just was was so thin like worryingly thin um but just couldn't get it out of her mind that she was that she was fat and um I guess that's just such a difficult thing for especially young teenagers to go through yeah, and I think that's the really, that is the really frustrating thing, another frustrating thing with eating disorders. It's like, although the body image doesn't necessarily cause the eating disorder, it just gets so wrapped up in it. And it's like, even now, like I know when I have a really bad body image day, like I know it's because there's a load of other emotional stuff going on. Like I might be stressed, I might be anxious, I might be feeling sad. Um, and the way that my brain and body deal with it is it makes me feel like I'm massive or that I'm really unattractive or something like that. And it's hard if you haven't had that, I guess, that treatment to show you that actually the evidence is there. Like, you're not, you're not out of shape. Like, and even if you were, like, it wouldn't matter. But actually, normally, there's like a deep rooted issue that I think always needs to be tackled. And I think that's the thing, isn't it, with eating disorders, like, they have the highest mortality rate out of any other psychiatric disorder. And one of the reasons for that is because it's an illness that is just so massively misunderstood. It's one that we don't talk about. And I think quite often, some people yeah just don't know how to get to that place where they can get treatment and then fight to get better yes so when you were coming to that point that turning point that you spoke about with um, the markings and the with the the nurse at the um, center you were at what was 
the sort of the start of your road to recovery? Um, yeah, so the first, I guess after that Friday night, I, I basically made this commitment to myself. I was like, I'm going to eat for like two weeks and then they'll let me out of hospital and I can do what I want to do. Um, obviously at that point, I didn't realise that when you go into a mental health hospital, quite often you're going to be in there for a very long time and at least yeah. like there until they feel like you're well enough to go and yeah, to live like in a healthy way. Um, so for the first few weeks, I kind of just plodded along um, and the structure in the day was so tight with like food and weigh-ins every day and supervisions and things like that. But the thing with eating disorders um, and with my recovery was when I went into hospital, um, because I was so unwell, I wasn't able to start doing therapy and accessing that support immediately. So a lot of the first few weeks and months was just trying to put on that weight and then when I was then able to kind of cognitively process things in a kind of better way and deal with my feelings and my emotions and have the energy to do that, I then was able to do a bit more therapy and start to talk about things and process it. Um, but I think something that helped right from the onset, um, and whenever I talk about this, I always think it sounds so ridiculous, <laughs> but like um, after every single meal time, every person with an eating disorder used to go into the room next door and we would talk about the meal and like for people who haven't had eating disorders, you're probably like, I don't know, you're probably like, how can you talk about a meal? Like <laughs> it's good, it's bad, it makes you full, like you're still hungry. But like when you had an eating disorder, there's so much emotion in that food. And so for me, this group gave me the chance to actually be like, I feel rubbish, I've just eaten this, like I feel really guilty, I feel like a failure. And it just helps to remove that emotional aspect from the eating. Um, and I think for me, actually, that was something that massively helped throughout my entire time in hospital, just kind of giving that a bit more of a voice and just feeling like actually I was being heard and I didn't need to show people that I wasn't okay through not eating um, as well. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I think the main things, I guess, at the start was just having that structure in my day, kind of having that support around me all the time, which was hard to kind of, yeah, hard to, I guess, embrace at first. But over like the year long period, I definitely felt more and more able to actually kind of grab a kind of nurse if I was feeling really like challenged by something and just kind of share what I was going through. Um, and I think in that sense, I'm quite lucky because I am quite vocal um, and I definitely now make more of an effort to try and talk about things openly just because I'm aware that I don't want to show people I'm struggling through not eating. Uh, do you remember how, how long were you keeping it sort of to yourself when you were going through that really difficult time as a I guess as a teenager um, going through the abuse abuse that you had to deal with as well? How, how was it almost when you were able to kind of just let it out to people? Did it feel like almost like that suffocation of you keeping it all inside? Did, was that like a really big release for you? Yeah, it was. So I didn't tell anyone about any of it. Um, uh, not until my school got in touch with my mum. And then I had to go to my GP and then get my referral. And that was the first time that my mum realised that something wasn't quite right. And then kind of throughout that whole six months as an outpatient, I didn't really talk about anything. Would, yeah, kind of lie my way through my weigh-ins, like lie a lot in therapy. Um, and basically just felt like I just needed to pretend like I was okay all the time. And then I think for me, like, when I went into hospital, I gradually began to talk. And that was when it really, really helped. And everything started to kind of come out slowly but surely over the next year. But in all honesty, like the abuse stuff, I've, I literally only processed about two years ago and went back to therapy to go through the whole thing again and to get to a place where I can now talk about it and not be triggered and 
yeah, not get really upset about it. Um, but I, I think that's the thing it takes. So it just, yeah, sometimes it just feels like it takes so much energy to talk about things. And I think it's like, yeah, I, I do a lot of work in schools. And actually, it's quite often when I go into schools, I'm like, I remind like other people that actually we don't know what's going on for anyone. And I didn't tell anyone, any of my school friends what was happening. Um, and actually the night before I went into hospital, I went out for a drink with my school friends and was like, yeah, I'm not coming back to school tomorrow. Having like lied to them all for the last six months about where I went on a Tuesday afternoon. And they didn't really understand it. Like they came and visited me when I was in hospital and stuff, but they didn't really get it. I don't think until actually much later on in their lives. Yeah. Do you think sometimes it takes people to to almost go through it to really understand? I feel like for even with me, like with someone that's dealt with depression, it's something that as a teenager, I probably would have just always sort of dispelled as not really being a thing. People that um, that are depressed just can't handle being sad or having bad days in it. But when but when you have any kind of mental health, you're like, wow. And you're going through that kind of the, the pain, the exhaustion, um, the mental trauma um that you know the tiredness that you get through every day like do you think like you almost need to go through it to really get it <laughs> yeah I, I do I yeah 100% particularly with um I don't know if you find this but particularly with things that then trigger you or cause you to like respond in a certain way um yeah. and I think again that's probably why I find it so important to share my experience because when I was in hospital like I used to spend so much time telling all of the nurses and the therapists that they didn't really understand what it was like, that yes, they'd, ever, they'd read a textbook, but they didn't fully get it. And I think that's why for me, it's so important to keep speaking up because actually people can see someone who's been through it and someone who is still here. And yes, it might still be like a battle every now and again, but it's, yeah, I'm still here and I'm still pushing on and plugging through it. Yeah, I think I think social media again is is, you know, although there can be positive aspects of social media, but it is huge, has a huge impact, especially on young people. And I know you say that you go around schools, which is which is amazing. But even when I go around schools to talk about reading and writing and stuff, the amount of times I say to kids, oh, what do you want to do when you're older? And the amount of times now, it's got, for my day, it was just like, you know, I want to be a vet or a nurse or whatever it was. But now it's, I want to be a YouTuber or I want to be an Instagram model or things like that. And, and these are like eight, nine, 10 year olds. And to, to me, that's quite a worrying thing to hear. Yeah, yeah, I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that is. And I think it is social media can be really, really dangerous. And we put so much pressure on ourselves on it generally. And if you've already got young people who are trying to look like, or even just create this kind of picture perfect life, again, it will put that pressure on them as individuals, but also on all their friends around them who are then seeing this kind of so-called amazing life. Um, and actually it's been, I think it has been really interesting actually watching people on social media, particularly over the last, yeah, like the last year. But when, and mainly, I guess, when things started to settle down, like people who were freelancing, like work got cancelled and then schools were off and people were spending so much time on social media. And whilst, like you said, it can be really positive and supporting each other, there is a huge, yeah, there's a huge negative with it. And I don't think maybe we fully understand, yeah, actually the long-term impact that it's going to have on young people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hope you've never had to deal with I think maybe we all do to some extent, but hopefully you haven't had to deal with this too bad. You get lots of trolls on media. Sometimes you can get, you can be subjected to uh, negative and horrible messages. And, you know, we obviously saw the stuff, I believe it was the start of the year with Caroline Flack, um, the the awful situation that, that she had to, to, to to deal with, um, which cost her to take her life. Do you think there is that, I don't know that there's just a, has to be a sort of, 
I'm trying to think, uh, reevaluate ourselves in terms of just being kind to people. I mean, it's not, I know it sounds, probably sounds a bit cheesy right now, but like in terms of, I don't feel like we're kind of taught that enough, you know, as a society just to really be kind. Because when you, you know, when you are kind, you just, you you feel better yourself that, you know, if you're being kind to someone, it makes you feel better as well as the other person. And I think it's just a bit underrated and it's something that's just so easy to do because like you like you, you mentioned earlier, you don't necessarily know what someone's going through. And um, Caroline Flack, for someone, is a prime example of someone that you would have thought had a really amazing life. She was, you know, mainstream television. Um, you know, she, she seemed like she was doing very, very well, always happy, very bubbly. Um, but no one could have predicted. There's so, so many people as well, celebrities that have sadly took their own lives. Robin Williams is another prime example um, of p- people you just don't know what's going on behind closed doors yeah and I think that's what's so scary about social media is we don't we don't know like and it's one thing to walk past someone in the street in the day-to-day and not know but on social media it for some reason feels worse and I think as well like like you said like on social media we we yeah people kind of share people say things that maybe they wouldn't say in person or we're more judgmental or we're quicker to judge because you can just fire out like a tweet or something on Instagram and you're just like, yeah, that's fine. It will no one will see it in a couple of days. But that person who sees it, it could have a really negative impact. Um, and actually, my must have been over the summer. Was it over the summer or maybe? Yeah, probably over the summer. I had a really bad kind of spate of people sending me really nasty messages. And at first, it just was like kind of like I kind of ignored it. it was like it's fine. It's what it is. And then after like a couple of days of it, it just felt relentless. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, I felt like I should come off social, like all of that stuff. And like, I ended up, it kind of stopped, if I'm honest, randomly, like two weeks after it had started. And I think part of that was I didn't retaliate. I just kind of let it happen. And, but it's it's hard. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? And I think it's even hard when you know someone who then feels like if you're on social media, you have a right to just say something or plug something in. And I've definitely, I definitely noticed that actually on Twitter quite a bit, particularly... I hate to say it, but particularly within the mental health community on Twitter, where there is a lot of, it feels like there's a lot of comparisons, a lot of comparing, and at times people say things. And actually, I think sometimes we're just too quick to jump down someone's throat when actually we probably what we should do is write out that tweet, maybe save it in our drafts. And then if we're still feeling like that a couple of days later or a couple of hours later, like post it or message that person separately and say something. Yeah, there's that fine line, isn't there? It's what's what is a uh, free speech and what is abuse, and people are just so easy to kind of. Well, it's social media. I'm allowed to say what I want, but there is that, there is that line of like, if you said that to a person so much in the street, you'd you know you could be prosecuted for, for your abusive behaviour, and no one would ever talk like that to anyone. I mean, there was a video I put up. Um, I don't know, it must have been a few months ago of just me talking to a bunch of primary school kids about reading and writing. And a comment on there, you big pussy. And it's just like, what? where does this even, would anyone ever come up to me after giving a talk to a kids and just say that to my face? No, it just wouldn't happen. It's just one of these things that that I, I don't know if it makes people feel better, great. But like, I think sometimes you've just got to, the way I try and deal with it, I think similar to what you say, you've just kind of got to ignore it and just think you almost, you poor bugger to those people that you have to kind of resort to that kind of stuff to to let out whatever it is you're going through. You know, definitely. And I think as well, like, kind of on, I guess, less on the kind of trolling aspect, but within social media and that whole body image aspect as well, with eating disorders particularly, you do get a lot of, um, particularly people are unwell mainly, you get a lot of competition. And I'm sure you've seen, like, the before and after shots and 
people sharing like their lowest weights and all of that sort of stuff. And I do think that actually as, yeah, social media companies need to step up and actually manage that and find a way to manage that in a way that's done in a healthy way. Because, yeah, a lot of that stuff is just as triggering as the abuse as well. Yeah, and I don't think that's anything I've ever seen you do. Like, you've never been someone, this was my lowest weight. I don't think that's, I, yeah, I don't think that's a thing that you particularly want to share, really, is it? You just, you know, this is where I've come from and this is the journey that I'm taking. And you're able to speak out about that, which is amazing. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, I, I don't know why people, I think people do it because eating disorders are such competitive illnesses. So you're like always competing with other people. And I think sometimes social media just fuels that competition. And maybe for younger people as well, actually, if you're someone who's just started out on Instagram or YouTubing or whatever, actually, and it'd be interesting to hear what your kid, like kids that you work with, actually, what they think about this, but whether if someone is starting to lose weight, whether they feel like they need to share that publicly and whether they think that will help them get a career in influencing or being a YouTuber or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think what it is, I don't know so much about the, with the kids that I work with, it's about weight loss because they're still fairly young kids. But I think what you do tend to see is, you know, I firstly, I'm shocked. I have an Instagram page, you know, as being a children's author and things. I, I find it shocking the amount of nine or 10 year olds have Instagram, firstly, the amount of follow followers that I get requests and stuff like that. They're nine, 10 year old kids. I was like, I wasn't allowed out past seven o'clock when I was nine or ten. Uh, you've got you're on Instagram, um, so yeah, it is. It is, but you do see a lot of um, the YouTube stuff. They're playing video games. They want people to follow them and stuff like that. And you get um, with, with girls. I find you probably get uh, the ones that um, that use the filters and feel like they have to completely filter themselves to look a certain way, and that that is worrying. And I'm not sure how how you would deal with that because I know it's easy to kind of say well blame the parents you know when they're letting their kids on this but I, you know I'm not a parent myself so I don't like to I'm sure it could be very difficult to to know always what your kids do and there's always a way they can get around things on the internet to, to do what they want to do and and socialize how they want to um but you yeah, know it, it is a worry but I just um yeah I'm not too sure I mean especially for young girls I mean what do you think I mean what do you cause, you know you have like the love islands and things like this that girls sort of look up to reality sh- shows but i mean who do you think young girls should be girls in particular should be looking up to in um as role models i think it's people who've who they find inspiring and people that maybe they want to that maybe they want to be like mentally and less so a looks wise so like people who maybe own their bodies people who feel confident people who are out there doing something and changing the world um, and I think for me, it's it's less about picking like specific people, but actually looking at who we're looking at on a day to day basis and what we're flooding ourselves with. So I know that when I go on my search bar on Instagram, my feed is created in such a way that I follow such a range of people. There's people in bigger bodies. There's people of all different races, people from all different backgrounds, everything like that, because for me, it's so important that I'm not just flooding myself with I don't know, people who have those kind of insta-perfect lives and insta-perfect bodies. So what I always think, actually, yeah, instead of finding those specific people, maybe it's actually just diversifying what we're looking at and normalising every single, like every single size body and things like that. Because I think that's what will, that's what will help people to start to own who they are and get that confidence and stop maybe critiquing what they look like as much. Yeah. And what do you help, what helps, what helps you in terms of inspiration or keeps you going? I know you're a big runner. You'd like to enjoy running. And I find running, when when I, and it's really easy to say that when you're going through any kind of mental health trauma or, or feeling just shit, 
um, to go, go out and run. And that's like, it seems such a, uh, a bad thing to kind of suggest to someone because you're like, you don't understand. But when you run, to me, like that's, you know, whether it be whether you're on antidepressants, talking to someone, great. But for me, if you just take, leave your phone at home and just go for a nice run, you do, it does, your, you, you do feel so much better in yourself. It just clears your head. Yeah, it does. For me, it just definitely gives me that headspace mm. and, yeah, helps me to kind of process my thoughts a little bit more as well. Um, I do have a little bit of a hit and miss relationship with exercise because um, it was a massive kind of part of my illness from like an obsessive point of view. Um, so I do have to be really careful when I'm having a really bad day that I'm not running to kind of punish myself. But I'm at a state in my recovery where I'm able to be like, actually, I'm going because I need that headspace, because I need to offload. And and I think like, yeah, it 100% helps. But what I would, I guess what I'd say, if you're someone who struggles with over-exercising or an eating disorder, it's like looking at those other things around there. Like I think physical activity and moving for enjoyment is so important. And whether that is going for a run, whether that's going for a walk, and whether it's even just like sitting outside, like... I know right now it probably isn't great to sit outside, although it has just stopped raining where I live. But um, like, I think getting that outside time is so, so important um, generally. And I think as well, like a big thing for me actually is just keeping kind of like my hygiene levels up. So like making sure that I'm getting dressed, making sure that I'm washing my hair, cleaning my teeth. Um, and if I'm having like a really bad day, just trying to kind of take it steady and to be okay with that. So what advice would you give to someone that's struggling to, whether it be eating disorder, mental health, or even, you know, what you've been through with abuse, is struggling to open up about it and share that? What was the kind of advice that you would say to someone? So I guess firstly, like, it's it can feel really hard to do it. And I think for me, it was like working out why it felt so hard, whether that's like the fear of judgment, whether that's you don't want someone to interfere or you don't want to be a burden to someone else. But actually then once you've kind of established what that might be, actually looking at your support network around you and thinking like, I've got X amount of friends, like who actually might be able to support me with this or who can I tell? And they won't try and kind of fix that situation. Um, so I always say go first point of call, I always suggest going to the GP, um, which I know sometimes seems a bit ridiculous, particularly at the moment when there are massive waiting lists for mental health services. Mm-hmm. But I think getting that flagged with the GP is really, really important. I think then... A thing that helps me then is to maybe send an email or a text to someone being like, I'm really struggling at the moment. Like, can you can you check in with me? Can you check I'm still eating? All of this sort of stuff really helps. Um, and then when I do that, always making sure that that person knows that I don't want to be fixed and that I don't want sympathy. I just need someone to kind of be there alongside me and supporting me when I need it. Um, and then I think as well, like something, a big thing for me is planning stuff and I think this goes for whether you've spoken out to your friends about how you're feeling or if you haven't, actually trying to plan a couple of really nice things. And yes, I know at the moment that might feel like it's impossible to plan anything in the midst of a pandemic, but actually look at the things that we can do, whether that's getting a takeaway, whether that's doing something on video in the evening, I don't know, something, whatever it might be, whatever it looks like for you. And actually, if you do that sort of stuff, it helps to keep you moving forward and helps to kind of keep you, yeah, I guess kind of keeps you motivated a bit as well. Um, and then like if you're really, really struggling and yeah, just aren't sure where to go or who to speak to or whether you just don't feel like your friends will get it. I do also think kind of that professional support is really helpful, whether that's the Samaritans, whether that's a therapist and having that space as well is is totally OK. And I think 
when I went back to therapy a couple of years ago, I was like, I can't believe I'm going back to therapy. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I've got friends. I should just talk to my friends about it. But actually, just because someone has to go back to therapy or just because someone wants to talk to a professional, it doesn't mean it's a weak thing. I think sometimes it's just really, really helpful. I'd be interested to get the female perspective of this. Why, why do you think it's harder for men to to speak out about their mental health? Because, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 30 years old. I've known five people, sadly, that have took their own lives. Um, one, one was a girl that had battled with it for many years and she was quite open about it. But the four guys that I knew, some closer than others, um, that have took their own lives, they've just done it and they've done it like that, just out of nowhere. No warning signs, just... They, they just shocked everyone was just left shocked and no one knew that they were going through such a difficult time and you know even with me when I was going through depression it was something that I kept so quiet for so long and the best way I could feel about the best way I could explain it was that was the worst period for me was keeping it to myself because I just felt like I was suffocating I was just keeping this thing inside me that was just so horrible and I just felt like I to be honest, I was I felt embarrassed that I felt this way. I was embarrassed that I was dealing with depression for the first time. I was like, I've never experienced feelings like this before. I think I know it's depression, but I feel so embarrassed to talk about it. Why do you think it is difficult for men to, to do that? I guess, in, I guess, yeah. I guess for maybe three main things that come to mind. Um, I hope I've, I hope it is now just three and not more than three. Um, <laughs> so the first thing is, I guess it partly depends on how you're brought up. So if you're brought up in a family where the females talk a lot about what they've been through, their emotions, and the men don't, you probably think that actually it's okay that men don't talk about things and then you don't know how to start that conversation, which I think particularly as we're transitioning between, like, yeah, I guess we're transitioning into a different generation in a way, and that sounds really weird, but, like, I'm 30 as well, and when I was growing up, like, my dad didn't really talk about his emotions or anything, and so my brothers don't really talk about their emotions, and... But then I know that when I have children, I'll probably be like, oh, actually, like, the boys do need to talk. So I think there's a current transition. So I'm hoping that that will shift and men won't feel like they can't because of the way they're brought up. Um, I do also think that men still try and take on a bit of a fixing role. Um, and maybe it's partly the way that they're wired. Maybe it's partly because there is less men speaking out. And the men that do speak out, whilst it's amazing, there are just less men doing it. And mm-hmm. it's still viewed as quite a feminine thing to talk about our feelings and our emotions whereas actually that narrative needs to change and I think like people who do talk about it and the way that you talk so openly like actually that will help that narrative change but there is still such a long way to go within that um so yeah and I yeah and I guess that is just that whole kind of masculinity thing isn't it like how we view ourselves how we view each other um and that stops men speaking out particularly if they may be struggling for a small amount of time and they're then like, oh, it will pass, it will be okay. And they don't know, yeah, they don't know where to go with it. And I do also think actually, just one more thing on that, like actually for a lot of people, and I know I've mentioned that kind of functioning aspect for quite a long time, but like actually I think for some people you you just get used to living like it. And I wonder if as a male, maybe you get so used to living quite unhappy a lot of the time not feeling great a lot of the time and then suddenly it just all gets too much whereas and whereas before you've just functioned like that for such a long time and felt yeah felt really alone with it and I think for me that's why it's so important that we don't just put the ownership on the person struggling to reach out but actually other people need to reach out like friends family whoever they need to be reaching out to those people at the moment who they think might be struggling or reaching out to their friends who maybe come across as totally together all the time and starting that conversation 
And I do think that if you have a group of friends and maybe it's, yeah, well, I know with my group of friends at least, and I know it won't be the same for everyone's, but like if one person shows a bit of a vulnerability, then other people will start to step forward and share something vulnerable as well. So I think like, yeah, I guess for all of us, like we need to show that vulnerability as well as reaching out to people around us. Yeah. And I think what helped me actually as well was, um, I mean, when you think of, I was saying this the other day, um, when you think of perhaps the most macho person in the world, you probably think of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, who's probably known to be as the most alpha male person in the world right now. And I, I really encourage guys to just to just to Google The Rock Depression. And The Rock is a video of The Rock quite openly talking about, yeah, I went through a really shit time with depression. And I think for guys to see that, to see that this is the most alpha, you know, what every guy looks at, I go for the, I go on the rocks, Twitter and Instagram daily just for inspiration. You know, he's up at five o'clock doing his workouts and there's me in bed with my dog till 10 o'clock in the morning or something. But, but you know, um, he's really, really inspiring to listen to. He looks like he's just, you know, uh, what most guys would love to, to emulate in terms of his success, his body, his look, whatever it might be. Um, but yeah, he quite openly in a video talks about he had a really hard time with depression. And I think guys need to look at people like that and realise that, you know, if it can happen to The Rock, we've got to get over ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Google it. Google The Rock Depression. It's really, really interesting video to watch. Um, so I believe, are you writing a, another book at the minute or you've got a book that's coming out? Yeah, it's coming out on the 4th of April. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's... Uh... It's like a self-help book specifically for people with eating disorders um, around the transition between treatment, whether it's inpatient or outpatient treatment, to then starting to kind of live, yeah, like an, I guess like a normal life in inverted commas. Um, so when you have an eating disorder and you've been in treatment, you get extremely institutionalised and you've got a lot of safe foods. You might struggle to go clothes shopping or go out for dinner with your friends. And this book is basically trying to empower people to take that next step in recovery, whether they've just left treatment or whether they left treatment 20 years ago. And actually this is, yeah, this is how they can then start to kind of, yeah, I guess live. Yeah, I hate saying live a more normal life, but it is like that moving away from that institutional way and challenging themselves. What is a normal life right now? I don't think many of many of us know. What's the what's the title of the book called? Hope for recovery. Definitely be looking out for that in April. April was it April? Yes, brilliant. Um, so I hope just to sort of finish with, like, if there was someone that's listening to this that is really struggling with um some of, some of the things that you've mentioned, whether it be their their weight, um, keeping in something in, um, keeping it, you know, battling with their mental health, um. What advice, what would you say to that anyone listening right now that might be going through that? Um, I'd say that right now it feels really difficult and you might have been struggling for the last couple of days, you might have been struggling for the last couple of years or weeks even. Um, but it's about looking at actually what you want out of your life. The way that the eating disorder makes you feel and the way that you get fixated on your weight or your body is a coping mechanism and it makes you feel invincible. It makes you just feel incredible. But actually I'd encourage you to take a little bit of a step back and actually think about all of that stuff that it's stopping you doing, whether that's going out for dinner with your friends, whether that's going on holiday and actually look at your life and work out what you want out of your life. Like, do you want to, do you want to spend, this sounds so brutal, but do you want to spend the rest of your life kind of calorie counting and feel really constrained within that or feeling like you have to weigh yourself 10 times a day? But look away from that and start to take those small steps forward. 
And I think within that, it's then finding someone that you can talk to. I think when you're in recovery from an eating disorder, accountability is so, so important. So whether that's someone professional, whether that's a friend or a family member, having someone that you do feel accountable to who can check in with you on a kind of day-to-day, week-by-week basis. Um, I think going back to creating some kind of routine. So having a routine where you get up at the same time every day, where you structure your day with meals and things like that. Um, and then I think as well, just realising and kind of remembering that actually there is, there is so much more to life than the eating disorder. And I know it might not feel like that. Your life might feel so inward and it might feel like the best thing possible. But as someone who's been through it and kept it secret for so long, I know that like, although I do still struggle every now and again with it, actually where I'm at now and my life now is so much better than it was when I was kind of in the grips of that eating disorder. Um, and I think as well, just to... I guess, encourage you to have a think about the stuff that you're looking at online. So whether you're looking at, I don't know, fitness, kind of fitness themes all the time, or whether you're constantly Googling weight loss or weight changes and things like that. And within that, once you've kind of done your kind of feed and sorted that out, actually looking at who you surround yourself with, making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who will encourage you to get to that better space. Amazing. Um, I, I think it's really important, actually, like you say, it's it's important for people that are struggling right now to hear from people that have, that have been there and been on the brink but have got through it and I think that's that's the the thing to listen to like you know it might be kind of feeling like you're in a that you're in a storm at the minute you know that you're kind of in this dark horrible storm but I think it's really important to realize that you're not the storm and it it will it can pass it might not seem like it it might just seem like it's completely black but you know you can get through it and listen to people like yourself is amazing to know that you can get through it and that you're helping others to do so so thank you so much for coming on um where can people find you on social media and things like that um so i'm on instagram as hope virgo with an underscore um and then on twitter it's just hope virgo um and yeah my website's hopevirgo.com so yeah i yeah i guess like if anything has really resonated with you today like do feel free to get in touch with any questions um but i would also yeah if it has resonated with you just encourage you to try and have some kind of conversation with someone about it brilliant and i'll be sure to check out your book in april hope through recovery i can't wait to to get my hands on that and yeah so hope thanks so much for coming on and yeah go check out that video of the rock it's really cool <laughs> cheers So there you have it, guys. A wonderful chat with Hope Virgo there. Um, be sure to check her out on social media, sharing um, really inspirational stuff on her Instagram and her Facebook and, and her Twitter. And um, yeah, I urge anyone that's um, going through any difficult times um, or can share any of her Hope's story there t- to follow her. She's very interactive on Twitter, talking to people. And um, yeah, I really urge you to go check her stuff out and to be sure to not only get her book that came out in 2017, um stand tall little girl but to also get the new book that's going to keep an eye out for the new book that's coming out um next year as well um yeah can't wait to read that um so yeah be sure to check out hope stuff like i said to anyone that's going through a difficult time out there please reach out to others you know it's it's never too late to get help and to say that you're not doing okay but it's always too late to quit And um, that's what I want to leave you with today. Um, I know we're going through really strange, difficult times right now, but um, it will get better. We will get through it. 
and uh, I know it's harder for guys to talk about as well their mental health and like I say in that episode with Hope type in the rock depression the rock the rock is probably the most alpha male guy out there that we that we can probably think of and he quite openly talks about his battles with depression um in his videos that um I've mentioned so be sure to check that out you can always reach out to me on my social media accounts um L Prestige 7 or my Facebook account just Lawrence Prestige or my Instagram on Prestige Books um I can't wait to share you uh, another episode of the Shapes and Stories podcast And uh, yeah, stay safe, everyone, and I'll speak to you again soon.